Thank you to Contentful for supporting our podcast. I'm Marcelo Lewin, and this is the Contentful Creators Podcast, Season 1, Episode 14. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 14 of the Contentful Creators Podcast, where I have conversations with content architects, designers, developers, and other creators who use the Contentful content platform and related technologies to create web experiences. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a content solutions architect and a certified Contentful professional. Today, I'll be chatting all about GraphQL with my guest, Gerard Kleiss, a microservices developer who contributes to open source GraphQL projects. But before we get started, if you want more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles, all focused on creating web experiences using Contentful and related technologies, please visit www.contentfulcreators.com. All right, Gerard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Nice to be talking to you. Also listen to some of the earlier runs and I really like the content. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm glad to have you here. Now, where are you located? I'm currently located at Papenbrecht. That's a small town in the Netherlands. So it's pretty late over there, right? Because it's about 7.30 in the morning here in Southern California. Yeah, it's about half past four now. Oh, okay. So it's early afternoon, maybe tea time. Thank you for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Today, we're going to be chatting all about GraphQL. But before we jump in, why don't you just give us your background? How did you get into development? What are you working on? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so when I finished university, then I wanted to get a job in IT. And when I started, I started working on what's now called the Roomreach experience. So it was, well, mostly Java backend stuff with the web-related things. And then gradually that became kind of boring and I started to do more with just Java Spring Boot stuff. And along the way, also working with databases like Mongo and Postgres. And at some point, I also became interested in GraphQL and then made this nice demo with subscriptions. It's kind of a bank simulation. I also wanted to speak at some conference and then GraphQL Summit came along with a call for proposals. So I went there last year to give the talk about the demo thing. So using uh, GraphQL with Kafka to support subscriptions. And between Christmas and New Year, I had some time off and had nothing really better to do or something. And then I decided it was just cool to add subscriptions to Micronaut, but it's a DVM framework. Um, I think that's about it. So in my current work, I'm still mostly using microservices that are DVM-based, mostly Spring Boots. Still no GraphQL really in my work. Also on the last hackathon, we did try something with GraphQL. But then you're running, we also tried to jump into subscriptions right away. And then you notice some things that are just difficult because most of the backend stuff is just based on request response. And then you're introducing WebSockets and then it's kind of hard to get that just working in one, just one day. So I think that's some stuff. You've got quite a background there. Now, you mentioned a couple of things, and we're going to jump into a lot of the things you mentioned there about GraphQL, about mutations, subscriptions, all of that. We'll get to that. But you also mentioned microservices. For those that are not familiar with what microservices are, can you give us just a quick one-minute overview of what is a microservice? Basically, you make the functionality like really small, so that's just concerning with ideally just one thing. So, for example, we have 
uh, some service I worked on, on was just busy with identification of the consumers and checking against an external service if they were allowed to make payments. And that was just it. And then other services could ask for that service if someone was allowed to do stuff and things like that. I see. So it's a very specialized focus functionality that just takes care of one thing usually. Yes. Right. And then sometimes you host it like, for example, in AWS Lambda, right? You would host something like that. You could also do that. That's right. That's like the very, very small kind of services. I think some people would call that like nano services or something. But indeed, you can, you can make them very small to have just functions really as your deployable unit. Yeah. But in our case, it's mostly a bit bigger and there's most often there's some kind of database that's connected to that one service and stuff like that. I see. And sometimes they also tend to become a bit like a monolith because then it's just a service for merchants or something and then every new API or stuff that has to do with merchants that just added on and then it becomes something that becomes a bit uh, hard to maintain. And Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about GraphQL and what attracted you to it. Why did you go into GraphQL? What is it that you like about it? Something I really liked was the subscription part. That was kind of like the thing that got me into really trying just how would it work. And something I became to really value currently is the introspection part. So you can just with GraphQL, you only need the endpoint and then you have all these tools to really know what kind of queries you can do and stuff like that. And in our current environment, we are using REST and then they often don't really know exactly where to call it and which arguments. And there is some Swagger documentation and stuff like that, but then that's again somewhere else. So having the introspection makes it really nice for those kind of things. And also to know which queries are possible on the acceptance or the production environment, then you can just check it. Explain for those that are not familiar with introspection a little bit more what that really means. Yeah, so basically you have from the GraphQL specification, there are ways to know what the endpoints can give you back. So there's specific queries to know what the GraphQL endpoint is capable of giving you back. So which kind of objects, which kinds of mutations, which kinds of queries, well, just everything you can do with it. So it's almost self-describing. It can tell you about itself. Yes. And you can also add things like descriptions. If you add it to your schema, then it's also part of the introspection part. So that means that it minimizes the amount of documentation you have to maintain, right? Because the schema itself is the documentation. True. And you have similar things like that with open API, but then, and then you can expose that with tools like Swagger, but then it's, like I said, it's often difficult to know where those tools are in practice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you also mentioned REST. Why don't you explain the difference between GraphQL and REST? I kind of dislike to have it like REST versus GraphQL, but of course there's like the typical way that you use GraphQL and the typical way that REST is used. One of, you now there are many differences, but uh, most often with GraphQL, it's just one endpoint. Well, it's possible to have multiple and also uh, kind of microservice setup where every microservice has its own GraphQL. 
the common thing is just to have one endpoint with your GraphQL exposed, and then everything is from that one endpoint. With REST, you have a lot of endpoints. And one of the things that's also well, I don't like about REST is that it's possible to have like very many kind of operations. That's not always clear what you need to do. So you have like uh, boots, you can have a patch, and when do you use one, when do you use the other? Well, with GraphQL, it's just permutation and subscription, and that makes a lot more sense to me. But of course, there's also other differences, like with REST, most often when something goes wrong, yeah, there is an error code, and some people really like that. And with GraphQL, most of the time, you just give back a list of the errors. I think that's a lot cleaner and stuff like that. Now, what about the concept of overfetching or underfetching? So it depends a bit how you use REST, because very often when I make REST endpoints, it's based for a specific purpose. So for example, you have a news overview endpoint and then you have the news articles, you have the title and the link to get the full news item and it's shown on some kind of page and when they go for the detail endpoints with the ID they get, then they just get everything that's shown on the page. And in that case, you don't really overfetch or underfetch because you get just exactly what they want to show with REST. But in practice, what also happens is if you have a lot of different clients, like you don't only have a web page, but you also have a mobile page, maybe also a mobile app, maybe different versions of the mobile app even and stuff like that, then it becomes very well then either you have a lot of different REST endpoints with a lot of different information going back that will be hard to maintain. Or if you use GraphQL, you can just leave it up to the client what they fetch. And it's easier to maintain. And there are also tools that you can, also with schema evolution, you can just see which fields that the clients really use. Well, with REST, you can't. So maybe you assume that some kind of field in your REST endpoint isn't used and you remove it and then suddenly something breaks. So with GraphQL, you can just gradually remove it, say it's deprecated and check if its clients really ask for it. Right. So there's analytics and we'll get into that with the tools. But it seems with what you just explained that with REST, even though you can have multiple endpoints to return different kinds of data, it seems that REST is a little bit more closely coupled the front end design than with GraphQL, where you only have one endpoint and you can get whatever data you need as much or as little as you need. Is that correct? Yes. Most times the rest is kind of driven from the back end, but you get back. And with GraphQL, it's much more client centered and the client is in control. Right. That saves a lot of uh, going back and forth because. Well, sometimes then there's like, I don't really know what I want there. So I just put it in the REST endpoint, for example, but you can also not put everything in there. And then at some point, the front end team starts asking, why isn't it here? And then you have to edit again. And with GraphQL, it can be much easier because you can just put everything in there that's in your database object or something. And then it's just up to the clients what they want from it. And you don't have all these additional kind of user stories or work with adding or removing one property. 
Right. So as an example, if you go and get a blog article with REST, you would get the blog article first. And within that, it would give you a reference to a user that wrote it. Then you have to go to a different endpoint, the user endpoint, and get the information about that user, right? Like whatever details. Whereas with GraphQL, you just tell it, I want the blog article. And then I also want the author first name and last name. And it would return all in one call, correct? Yes, exactly. Or with REST, you could, of course, also create a separate endpoint with like a slightly different URL or you add some kind of parameter. And then if they use that parameter for every author, you also supply the first and the last name, but then it becomes very complex. Right, to maintain, because you have all these permutations, right, based on all the different kinds of scenarios that you don't even know about in the future. Yes, and there's no, not really a standard that, well, you could change the URL, you could change the parameter, you, you, yeah, there's just so many things that could be slightly different, and then you also have to have tooling that's kind of works with it, and with GraphQL, it's just all in the language, which makes it much easier to work with. Sure, sure. Now, of course, between the both of us, we've been giving GraphQL a lot of love, but with any technology, there's always challenges. What is one challenge that you can think of with GraphQL that is overcome in REST? What people often fear with GraphQL is people start to do very complex queries because that's possible. But I think that's often more of a theoretical thing especially if you just have authentication and not have a public API because then it's just still up to your own developers to not make very complex, strange queries. And I think that's very easily preventable. And these complex queries, the negative is that it could bog down your system, right? If you're having queries that sort of like are nested within themselves because you can nest as much as possible. Yeah, so you could nest practically indefinitely so you could ask the author and then from the author all the blog articles and then again from the blog articles all, all the, the authors. authors and then you keep going in a loop and then you're um, right things but definitely and it's a bit harder on the back end to implement than just a rest endpoint i see and we're going to get into the details of that so is GraphQL tied to any specific language or is it more language agnostic? And if so, which languages support GraphQL? It's language agnostic, but there are some... Yeah, so one of the kind of problems with that is that the GraphQL specification also protocol agnostic. So most of the GraphQL things are going over HTTP. And now there's work done from the Federation to have specification for GraphQL over HTTP, but that's not really there and not really official. So in theory, most of the servers and clients, they look how the Apollo implementation works and they kind of fill the details in with that because just the GraphQL specification isn't enough to create a client or a server. And there's also, especially with subscriptions and things, they do slightly different. And that makes sometimes when you use a client in a certain language and server in another one, that it won't work. And I've used a couple of GVM servers mainly. So I've used Kickstart Spring Boot one. I used uh, Kotlin GraphQL. It's also quite nice because they work together with Apollo to have it working with Apollo Federation. And I've did, like I mentioned in the introduction, something on, on Micronauts GraphQL that's like very, 
it's a framework that's really centered around microservices and also makes it possible to compile down to a native image. And I've also done some things in Rust, but not yet with GraphQL, because they just recently added subscriptions there, so I really want to give that a try. But most of the things are all done with JavaScript. So there's a lot of different JavaScript servers. There's a lot of different JavaScript clients. So that's... But other languages support it as well, correct? Yes. So you have also things in Go and Ruby, I think. I think Java too, right? Yes. Like I mentioned, there's GVM ones. Yeah. But that's mostly Java, R Kotlin, and yeah. And Clover also has a nice one. So it sounds like GraphQL is almost like a front end to anything, right? And what I mean by a front end, I don't mean like on the browser, but a front end on the server side that can connect to databases, to other REST APIs, to even a Google Sheet if you wanted to, right, to query it. Is that true? Well, it's one of the use cases, for example, if really to use it like a BFF, so a backend for front end. So then not everything has to be GraphQL with just your BFF. And then from that, that one endpoint, that's the server part, you could, uh, for example, use consume REST endpoints or maybe even SOAP or other things and then just convert it to have it as one schema in GraphQL and have all the advantages of GraphQL without needing to have everything GraphQL. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's get into a little bit of the details of GraphQL. Let's start with schema. What does the schema really mean? So that's really kind of the definition of what you can do with the endpoints. So it's all the kinds of objects or nested objects, interfaces and stuff that's all in schema. So it's almost like the blueprint of what you could do with what you're exposing. Yes. Right. So you mentioned before, way at the beginning, you talked about queries and subscriptions. There's three main things you can do in GraphQL, right? You can query, you can mutate, and you can subscribe. Can you explain a little bit of details on each of those? What did those mean? Yes. So query is mainly just getting some kind of information from the backend. So most of the times that it's probably something that's stored in a, in a database. With the mutation, you also change something. What's also nice from the GraphQL specification is that, well, queries, because they don't change anything, you can just do them, resolve them in any order with mutations because one mutation might change something else and you can have a query, sending a query to GraphQL with multiple mutations. They are always executed in order. And subscriptions, they are not that much used in production, but the nice thing is that it's giving you back a stream. So one of the things I did with the banking demo was that you could get all your transactions and then also optionally when you were creating the subscription, add a filter. So for example, you could get all only your transactions and only when they were over a certain amount and stuff like that. Right. And it's almost like a webhook, I guess, that is just, it keeps listening for something specific that you want, right? So you can subscribe to an article change. And when that article changes, you can then go and execute something, right? So it'll give you back that the article change and maybe even what changed in the article. Yes. In practice, it's always backed up by WebSockets. And then on the server parts, there is some kind of process starting. So in case of the uh, banking demo, it's just kind of listening to a Kafka topic. And then whenever 
a message comes along, the client is asking for it and it's sent to that client. Now, you mentioned before objects and GraphQL has two types. They have custom objects and then scalar types. Can you explain the difference between both of those? What does that mean? So scalar is a kind of a special type that's not having any nested or any additional fields. And you can use it to add some kind of validation. So one of the simple examples is, for example, if you start working with dates, and then you could put that in a scalar type. And then if the client and the server supports it properly, then it's easier to work with dates instead of having them as a string. And then in the client and the server, you have to kind of translate it from string. But that's also giving problems because if it doesn't work properly with the client of the server, then it becomes a problem. So I, I think it was from the GraphQL Cotton library. They said they kind of prefer dates to be just represented as objects. So then you have kind of an object with, for example, day as an int and a month as an int, etc., etc. So then it's much easier because then you're just keeping to the GraphQL specification. So that's an example of representing the date as an object. That's just a collection of strings and ints that it are composed of. I see. So with the difference between objects and scalar types are more like scalar types are more native, like in decimal string and objects are more like custom objects that you can create for your types. For example, you can create your own author type or your own article type that has whatever fields in it. Well, you can also create your own scalars, but then objects are just composed of different kinds of kind of plain types and scalar are kind of special and that's well that can be nice but like i said if you're you're very dependent on the client or the server to have the same scalar and implement it in the same way i see there has to be almost like a contract between the client and the server side that agree on it that they have to agree on because otherwise it won't really work and I guess from just experimenting and finding out in practice that Kotlin GraphQL thing said you can better just represent them as just objects. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about input types. What are those? So input types are special kind of type you use only to a company when you, for example, when you create a mutation. Because often there's a difference with uh, mutations, objects you make and the objects you get back. So when you're, for example, when you create a new user with a first name and a last name, then it doesn't have any ID yet. But once it's stored in a database, it does have an ID. So then to make that different kinds of objects clear from your schema, you can have an input type. So then what are fragments? Fragments are parts of a shared logic that you can reuse. So for example, if often uh, you need to treat of the same kind of things. For example, in your front end, you have kind of a widget thing and it always shows the first name, last name and a location of someone. You can make it a fragment and then you can 
just use that instead of writing out all the properties that you want to ask each time. So it makes it more readable. Well, it also makes it more scalable, right? Because if you're using those same fields in other objects, and then later you want to add a couple more fields, you would have to go to every single object and add those fields, where if you just added in the fragment, any object using that fragment will automatically now have accessibility to that, correct? Yes. So it's also more maintainable. Right, right, definitely. So we've been talking about a lot of stuff, mutation, subscriptions, queries, but one thing that's very important, which I just realized we haven't touched upon, is resolvers, right? Because without resolvers, there's nothing we could do. What are resolvers? So resolvers is kind of the way that the, well, the query in a general sense, so then I mean that that could be a query mutation or subscription, is transformed into the response. And the response from GraphQL is always in a JSON format. So you have some kind of query. So for example, I want to have a person and then you supply an ID and then the resolver is the bit of logic that fetches the person from the database and then you could get the properties from it. And it's a bit depending on which language you use, of course, because sometimes you can just hook on certain annotations on methods in Java that's with the GraphQL Kotlin one, and then it will just create the kind of the resolvers and also the schema for you. And you also have the other way around. Some uh, languages you have to supply the schema, and then you really have for each element of the schema you have to write a resolver for that part. Right. So the mutation, the query, and the subscriptions are almost intents that the, of what the user wants to do, and the resolver is what really takes care of fulfilling that intent. Yes, that's true. We're almost here at the end of the podcast. You've been sharing a lot of great information, so we really appreciate that. Just a couple of more things so people have a well-rounded information here about GraphQL. Can you explain what enums are? And also, after that, maybe touch upon interfaces. Yeah, so enums are kind of fixed type, but it's represented as a string and have a fixed number of values, although it's also possible to extend on them. For example, if you want have with microservice or something and then you want to use the schema of one service and add some enum to it or something, and then it's just having fixed values for them. And what about interfaces? What are those? Yeah, so interfaces, they say which kinds of properties are given back. So you can then have different kinds of objects that have the kind of the same and then implement the same interface on it. So for example, you can have persons and then persons have a first name and a last name and have that as an interface. And then you could have employers and employees and have them both have implemented person interface. And then you could just get a list of persons and then that could be employers or employees. And then because they both have implemented the same interface, then you know you can ask the first name or the last name of every one of those entries. I see. Now, of course, GraphQL is mainly a spec. It's not a technology, it's just a spec, right? And then to implement that spec, you need some tools. So to that effect, can you explain what is Apollo, Yoga, or Relay, and the many other tools that are coming out? Yeah, so most of the all ones you call are kind of JavaScript tools. So I haven't worked with any of those really. 
and they all have kind of their own bit of flavors and what they do and what they don't. So you have things like authentication that's not in the spec itself. Of course, you can do ways around it. And also, for example, pagination, because that's not part of the specification. And of course, there are multiple ways to do it. So then those technologies provide ways to help you with that. So some of the things you can do with Prisma, that's not one of those you mentioned, but that was just in the podcast, so I know a bit about that. And then you can, for example, just connect your database and want to expose that as GraphQL, and then it kinds of writes some kinds of filters and pagination stuff in the GraphQL for you, so you don't have to write all those boilerplate. So at the end of the day, to implement GraphQL, you're going to need some sort of GraphQL server or tool like Apollo, Yoga, even Prisma, as you mentioned, right? You're going to need something like that to be able to implement and run your GraphQL queries, correct? Yes, you need something. So because, well, GraphQL in the specification itself is just there's this special kind of language that's query mutation or subscription. And then if you supply this, then according to these rules, you would get back some kind of JSON like this. And like I said, it's not necessary that it's going through HTTP, but most of those things do. So then you need some kind of codes in need that uh, makes that string, that's a query or mutation or subscription that sends it to a server and also gets a result back. And probably you also want to generate types or if you use it with React, you can use it with hooks and stuff like that. So you have all kinds of these boilerplate stuff that you would need to write if you would really just use the GraphQL specification and write it for yourself that you can leverage on libraries to get those things. Got it. Well, Kedard, unfortunately, we're completely out of time. I really do want to thank you for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate that. If people want to get a hold of you, do you want to provide an email or a Twitter URL? Whatever you like. Twitter would be the most handy, I think. So it's just G-K-L-I-G-S. That's my, my first letter of my first name and my last name. Excellent. And we'll post it on the show notes. Thanks again, Gerard. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you were here with us. Just a quick reminder to visit www.contentfulcreators.com for more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles. So until the next episode, I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin. Cheers, everyone. Cheers.